The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. We're in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. If you're reading in the Black Pew Bibles, it's on page 946. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by sacrifice of himself." And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. You may be seated. Well, here we are. We're in the back half of Hebrews chapter 9. And if you saw my message last week, it's just going to be good for you to just remember to keep your thumbs in Hebrews 9 and through the remainder of the main teaching portion of Hebrews, which is going to actually come, that doctrinal instruction is going to come to an end next Sunday when the author is going to carry his theme of Christ, the better priest, the better sacrifice, and the better tabernacle, and the better blood. All of this is just one big giant argument that has been going from chapter 9, verse 1, and will wrap up in chapter 10, verse 18. Rolling out of chapter 10, verse 18, the author is finally going to begin to turn and say, hey, for the past 10 and a half chapters, I have been giving you some high-octane deep current gospel realities and so now what we need to do is begin to think about what does walking by faith look like what does this mean for our lives as men and women who have been washed redeemed by the blood of the lamb so what you're going to hear this morning I say all that to say is this our our author 
If you haven't figured it out yet, he is a one-theme man. I mean, he's got one note, and this cat is playing it over and over and over again. He, will refu- he refuses with like a bulldog tenacity. He refuses to loosen his grip on the realities of Jesus being better. What makes chapter 9 in the first 18 verses of chapter 10 so interesting is it's just all about the blood. It's all about the blood, the sacrifice, the redeeming sacrifice of Jesus. And he just keeps weaving these themes over and over again. And he gets done with the theme. He sets it down. He moves on. And you think he's done. And he actually goes back and he picks that theme up again. And he's just like a beautiful tapestry weaving together the beautiful ornate picture of the Lamb of God who was slain in order to take away the sins of the world. So what we're going to hear this morning is a straight carryover of the argument that he began last week concerning Jesus and his blood. So our sermon title this morning is aptly titled, Nothing But the Blood. Nothing But the Blood, because you're just going to see the idea of blood in worship and the redemption that comes from blood. It's just going to show up verse after verse after verse after verse. The main idea this morning really revolves around the better blood of Jesus, the better blood of Jesus, the better sacrifice of Jesus. His blood actually accomplished something when it was shed on the cross. And the better blood of Jesus, what we're going to see is that it does two things. It secures our inheritance and it it accomplishes our redemption. So I'm going to pray for us this morning, and then we're going to dive in. And what you need to know is that this sermon this morning really is going to be an extension of the worship that we just did this morning when we sang a bunch of songs about blood. It's really a call to come and behold the better priest. Behold him who is the better sacrifice. Behold him who is the better blood so that our hearts will be stirred by the realities of we need nothing else other than King Jesus. That is my hope and my aim and what I'm going to pray for this morning is that the simple unpacking of these things would not land on us with dull ears and dull minds and dull hearts, but it would land on us in such a way where our soul is stirred to worship him who is better, him who is better. So let's pray to that end, okay, saints? Jesus, you are better. You're the best. You're superior and you're sufficient in all that you've done and accomplished by your blood. It's weird to talk about blood in the way we're going to talk about it today because we just don't think about these things in ways that we ought to. We fail to grasp the gospel and its relationship to the shedding of your blood. We're going to catch a glimpse of that today. So I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to put the spotlight on Jesus, magnify Jesus, stir our hearts to worship Jesus. Would you just give give us that stirring, worshipful sense in the depths of our souls this morning, Holy Spirit, as we contemplate and consider Jesus, the high priest of our confession, And how he did not bring a different blood, but he brought his blood. He was the sacrifice for our sins that we need. And by his blood, we are washed, cleansed, and made clean before a holy God. God, stir our hearts in these things. It's in your name, I pray. Amen. 
Well, as you just heard me say, and if you were just paying attention at all this morning, in case you didn't just hear what I said, what you have hopefully noticed this morning is that the front bulk of our liturgy has been a very bloody liturgy. We've been focusing on the blood, and this isn't just by happy accident that this took place. It was by extremely purposeful design that our songs and our confession and our liturgy and the scriptures we were reading had at the center of it all blood. It was a bloody liturgy purposefully designed. And the reason why we designed it this way is because the introduction of Christ's conscience cleansing blood last week, as I said, the author is not releasing his grip on this. If anything, what he does as he rolls through the therefore of verse 15, he is just amplifying, magnifying even further the realities of the better blood of Jesus that he began to introduced last week. Remember, if you just scroll back a couple of verses up to chapter 9, verse 12, we learned last week that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. And what did that accomplish? It secured something for us, says verse 12. It secured an eternal redemption. So if you've never had a chance to just pause... Stop and think, what is the role of blood as it relates to the gospel of King Jesus? The author is giving you that opportunity to observe, think, and see the relationship this morning. What he's going to tell us is that the first covenant, the first covenant, established by God was a covenant marked by blood. And obviously so. If you've ever read the Old Testament at all, what you see is there's blood everywhere. Blood of uh, bulls, calves, goats, lambs. It's just, it was a bloody affair, Old Testament worship. But when we trip into the New Testament, that that tends to fade out of our mind. But what we're actually going to see is the author is going to say, actually, just as that first covenant was a covenant that was instituted by blood, what you're going to see is that it's absolutely no different for the better new covenant that's been initiated by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This covenant, it's exactly what we read at the very end when Jesus, during the Lord's Supper, what does he say? He says, this is the blood of the covenant, my blood. Right in that moment, you have the high priest not saying, I'm about to initiate something new because I just sacrificed a calf or a bull. What he's about to say is, I'm about to climb onto that cross and I'm about to initiate something new via my blood. See, truly in Jesus, what we have is the better blood. Better blood which accomplishes eternally more than any Old Testament sacrifice. So as the author, remember, continues to march forward, don't get lost in all the details, zoom out, pull out what is the entire gist of Hebrews about. There's a people who've confessed Christ because of persecution for following Jesus. They're like, yeah, do we really need this Jesus? And he's been saying over and over and over and over again, and what you have before us is just yet once again, one more piece of ammunition to lay before the people saying, if you bail out on Jesus, you're bailing out on the better blood that can truly wash and cleanse and bring the forgiveness you need. So he's nudging 
his audience to not go backwards, but he's yet again nudging them to go forward and cling to the better blood of Jesus, which secures our eternal inheritance. That's point number one, verses 15 through 22. The better blood of Jesus does something. It secures an eternal inheritance. So if you were to step back and just say, okay, okay, like why, why blood? Have you ever just asked yourself, like, why such an emphasis on blood? We sing hymns about it. We have a cross, which is an implement designed to bring forth blood. We talk about crucifixion. We have a bloody Savior, thorns, as we said in our confession, the whips on his back, hands and feet. It's just, it's just a blood-type gospel. Why was this necessary? Why did it need to be done, what we would say to that question is, it was necessary. The bloody sacrifice of Jesus himself was necessary to secure your eternal inheritance. There is an inheritance for God's people that can be received. And what the author is going to say is that eternal inheritance could not be received by you, saint, unless there was blood shed for you. So look starting in verse 15. Here's what the author says. Therefore he, Jesus, what is he? He is the mediator of a new covenant. So that, here we go, here's what he accomplished. So that those who are called may receive something. Receive what? Receive the promised eternal inheritance. Why? Because a death has occurred that redeems, truly redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You see, the plain fact is that Jesus is the better priest of a better tabernacle who has offered the better blood. And all of this, says the author, is what guarantees Jesus to be the better mediator of a covenant. And in his mediating work, notice that it's Jesus alone who does something. It's Jesus alone who secures the promised eternal inheritance for those who are called. Sinners made clean before a holy God by the blood of Christ are now able to receive something. They're able to receive a gift, not a fading inheritance, not a temporary inheritance, but an eternal inheritance. This language is not unique to the author in Hebrews 9. The apostle Paul picks up on it in Ephesians chapter 1. When he says and glories in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, here's the language of Apostle Paul, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So all of the present and future benefits of Christ's saving work. Think about the inheritance that is now yours because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. What is some of the blessing, the spiritual blessing, the eternal inheritance that is now yours? You can now have an eternal redemption. You now can have a clean conscience. You can now have access to God. You now have the forgiveness of sin. You have the promise of a future resurrection of your bodies. And the list could go on and on and on of how, maybe you put it like this, the treasures of heaven, which are eternal, are now been attributed to your account. The reason why this is possible, says the author, is not because you're good, not because you're really awesome, not because Jesus is like, you know what, I think that Brady guy, he just sort of deserves a little bit of this inheritance. No, 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 no. He says the reason why all of this eternal inheritance can even be ours is because a death has occurred 
a death that truly redeems. You see, no blood of an Old Testament sacrifice could eternally redeem, could bring this eternal inheritance. No sacrifice of an animal could secure such a thing. Only the better blood of our great high priest could bring about such blessings to the people of God. You see, what the author is driving at, friends, is this. Death is the pathway to inheritance. Death is the pathway to inheritance. And this truth that death is the pathway to inheritance explains why the author does something a little funky in verses 16 and 17. He rolls into the illustration of a last will and testament of somebody. And what he's doing there in those verses is he's explaining to us in an earthly illustration, using an earthly illustration, what we all know to be true, namely that death is the pathway to inheritance. Many folks make a will, a last will and testament. Upon my death, I'm declaring in my will, Brian is going to get this, Tom gets that, Terry gets this, my kids get the whatever it might be, right? Many folks make a will, but what we all know to be true is that as long as the one who made the will is alive, that will is not in force. A will, he says in verses 16 and 17, takes effect only at the death of somebody. That will becomes concretized and unchangeable upon the death of the person who made the will. So you might know in advance that you are going to inherit a vast estate from your rich uncle moneybags. But the truth remains that none of this vast estate is actually going to be yours until what happens? Until a rich uncle moneybags dies. Then upon his death, inheritance is yours. The author is just simply saying that earthly illustration is a perfect picture for the eternal realities of the spiritual blessings in heaven, this internal inheritance that we receive from Christ. Like a will, says the author, the better covenant that Jesus has instituted, the guarantor of this new covenant with all of its eternal inheritance, it cannot be received unless a death has occurred. And of course, this is exactly what has happened in the gospel. The new covenant marked by Jesus' blood means the promised eternal inheritance is now freely available. Freely available to all who would come to Jesus for salvation and for sin-dead sinners redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we receive this news with great rejoicing. Why? Why? Because the best part of our inheritance is not merely the inheritance we get from Jesus. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm stoked to have a resurrection body one day that will never fade. I'm stoked to have forgiveness of sins. I'm stoked to have a cleansed and pure conscience. But I'm even more stoked to get the central blessing of the eternal inheritance himself, namely King Jesus. The internal inheritance you're going to receive when you roll into the eternal kingdom with King Jesus, the Lamb slayed, ruling on the throne as the King of kings, Lord of lords, Prince of peace, ruler above all things, sustaining all things, redeeming all things. What you're ultimately going to get is him. 
He is going to be the supreme object of your affections, and you now have the right to lay claim to that inheritance, Jesus himself, because he died in order to secure that eternal inheritance for you. You see, the point that the author is simply making is this, is that none of these new covenant blessings could be eternally inherited without blood. You must have the blood, he says. Continuing on in verse 18, he just keeps rolling out illustration after illustration. Just as the first covenant was inaugurated by blood, so this new and better covenant initiated by Jesus is done so by blood. The original audience would have been very familiar with this idea. It's a concept a little bit foreign to us because we don't operate and haven't operated in the Old Testament Jewish system of worship. But if you go back to Exodus chapter 24, what you begin to read is what he writes here in verses 19, 20, 21, and 22. You'd begin to discover that Old Testament worship looked like this, that when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took what? The blood of calves and goats. He took water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that was commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 22, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood because the plain fact is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In other words, Old Testament worship was a bloody matter. I think that is something that you and I saints miss in regard to the greatness of the sacrifice of King Jesus as it relates to our understanding of what he accomplished on the cross. The Old Testament worshiper would have no problem linking together the bloodiness and the extent of the sacrifice that took place because of their Old Testament personal, intimate connection and closeness to what exactly had to take place when you went to worship Yahweh the living God as an Old Testament worshiper. Just pause and think about how gruesome a scene it truly would have been to go and worship Yahweh in an Old Testament way. So there you are, you would approach God as we saw last week, you couldn't go into the holy of holies, the most holy place. You couldn't go into the holy place. The best you could do was get into the outer tabernacle courtyard area. There would be a big altar there, and what your ears and your nose and your sight would be filled with would be the screams of animals being slaughtered, blood pouring out everywhere. You would approach the tabernacle with your animal in tow. An animal, by the way, which had never done anything to deserve what is about to happen to it. You hand off your sacrifice, and as the priest performs his duty, your senses would just be overloaded by blood. There would be blood on the floor. There would be blood on the altar. There would be blood dripping from the hands of the priest. The priest's clothes, which are meant to be white linen, would just be splattered and covered and cloaked in blood. There would be blood on the people. There would just be a scene of red, 
consuming your senses right before you and the overwhelming theological point that any worshiper was to walk away with was, would be this. My sin is serious. The fact that all this death and blood and gore and all this had to happen is teaching me a single theological point, at least. It's my sin that brought about this sacrifice. It was my sin which demanded this terrible price. It was my sin which meant the death of another. After all, what is the shedding of blood in this system? The shedding of blood in the Old Testament system was the death of a substitute. It wasn't you going to the altar and having your throat slit and your blood poured out for the sacrifice for the sins. It was the sin of, or it was the blood shed out of someone else. It was the substitute of that animal. His blood its blood being poured out, its life draining out, its life going away so that your death could become life. And the sinking realization in it all would be, man, death is what I deserve for my sin against God, but by the blood of the substitute, what I gain is life and not death. And then you would do it again, and again, and again, and again, and again. Not because your hope is in the efficacy of the blood of bulls or goats, but so that your heart and your mind would be able to step back and go, man, all of this repeat, all of this blood, all of this blood, all of this blood, all of this death, this substitute in my place, it's almost as if what we need is a lamb from God who can truly take away sins once and for all. That was the idea of Old Testament worship. It wasn't meant to be an end in itself. It was a beautiful pictorial representation that was meant to make hearts strain forward to the one better blood sacrifice that could take place and be, boom, done once for all so that we might truly have the forgiveness and cleansing before a holy God that we actually need. You see, by the prophet Ezekiel, we learned the soul that sins must die. The soul that sins must die. And if any sinner is to gain eternal life instead of eternal death, then someone must die so they might live. And if any sinner can grasp this much, then what they've grasped is the very beginning of the gospel. For the good news of the gospel is that bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, condemned he stood. Jesus sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. You see, friends, the vast amount of blood shed under the old covenant had in it the ultimate purpose of straining forward once for all to that shedding of blood that stands at the center, that stands at the heart of the gospel of God's grace. Why? Because point number two, the better blood of Jesus actually accomplished something, a once-for-all redemption. The better blood of Jesus accomplished a once-for-all redemption. The author just keeps rolling forward. He's such a good preacher. He just keeps going forward, unpacking these realities. And look how he begins to describe Christ's accomplishment in verse 23. 
He says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Notice this language here. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands. We saw this in the past couple weeks. These holy places made with hands, what are they? They're just they're copies of the true things. But here's what Jesus did. He has entered into heaven itself. And what is he doing now? He is appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. On our behalf. Friends, the great hope any of us have before a holy God is the hope of representation. It's the hope of representation. It's the hope that someone can stand in our place and represent us to a holy God. Sin separates the sinner from God. And because of our sin, we do not have direct access to God. That's what we saw last week. This is why we need a priest who doesn't just bring a sacrifice of bulls and goats, but brings the better sacrifice of himself. A priest who doesn't operate in merely holy places made with hands, but in heaven itself. A priest who doesn't offer his sacrifice repeatedly, but appeared once for all to die once in order to do something, bear the sins of many. You and I cannot represent ourselves before God. If you try to stand before God on that final day of judgment, as he says down there in verse 27, it is appointed for a man, appointed for a woman, to die once, and then comes the judgment. If your hope of representing yourself, a sinner, before holy God on that day of judgment is your hope, I'm telling you that it's a hope that's going to lead you to hell. You and I, as sin-dead sinners, cannot hope to represent ourselves before a holy God. But the good news of God's gospel is that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done in order to represent you perfectly before a holy God. And so he's looking at the Hebrew Christians and saying, is this really what you want to bail out on? Is this really what you want to forsake and leave behind? Do you really want to die once and then stand before God in judgment and receive what you deserve instead of being found hidden in the Christ who can perfectly represent you before a holy God and he has proved his ability to perfectly represent you through what he accomplished via his better blood? Is this really what you want to bail out on? You see, Jesus, he says, notice how he keeps saying he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. He says, Jesus appeared in the presence of God on our behalf, doing what we could not do on our own. He says he appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Again, doing what we could never do for ourselves. And then he says, just as sure as it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment, so Christ will appear for the third time. For the third time he says appear, but appear for a second time. What is his point in saying this? What he's saying is, listen, as sure as you and I will die, the statistic that is a 100% statistic that applies to every human being, past, present, and future, is this. You will not escape death. That is a take-it-to-the-bank surety you can cash that check because it is going to happen you will not not die you're going to die 
And the author is saying, as sure as you and I will die, as sure as you and I will then stand before God our judge upon our death, we can also take this to the bank. We can rest assured that King Jesus will appear a second time, notice, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In his first appearing, Jesus dealt with sin by dying as the substitute that we need. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is by his substitutionary sacrifice, says the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, who has freed us from our sins by his blood. And then when he appears again, we have the promise that he's going to bring us home. So just think, says the author, no blood of bulls, no blood of goats could accomplish this, only the better blood of Jesus. Friends, what you need to hear is this. What you need to hear is this. Jesus has dealt with sin. Jesus has dealt with your sin by his blood. On the cross, he bore the sins of many, receiving the full wrath of a holy God so that you would not have to receive that wrath. But instead, you could stand before a holy God being represented by a perfect sacrifice, King Jesus himself, and not receive wrath, but instead receive the welcome of eternal life in Jesus, your substitute. The choice before you this morning, wisdom literature in the, old, in, the, in the Bible often like says, like, listen, here's the way of wisdom and here's the way of folly. And this morning, the way of folly looks like this. You know what? The Jesus thing, I'm not quite sure I'm down with it. Blood, ooh, that's a little gross and this is weird and I wish he had stopped talking about it. You know what? I think I'm going to die once and stand before the judge and I'm probably going to be able to make it in. That's folly. Or wisdom says, what? Jesus has done what needs to be done. Jesus has accomplished what needs to be accomplished. The better priest has offered the better sacrifice of his better blood so that he can bring in the better covenant. And you're saying that I can be a part of that. I can know that. I can taste that. I can receive that. I can have the eternal inheritance. I can have access to God. I can have my conscience cleansed. I can have my sins forgiven. These are things that I can have by coming and humbling myself and confessing before God, I need this Jesus to save me. Is this what you're saying? The Bible would say, yes, that's exactly what you're saying. That's wisdom. It's coming and humbling and admitting, I need what Jesus has accomplished. I need a Savior because I'm a sinner. It is appointed for you to die once, and after that comes judgment. Listen, there is not a single sin committed in all time that God will allow to go unpunished. I think some of us are really hoping and banking that God is just going to turn a little blind eye and sweep some of our sins and peccadilloes under the rug so that maybe we can squeak in to heaven based upon some self-inherent goodness. But I'm telling you, the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-holy God can not allow any single sin committed against him to go unpunished. Either you're going to die once and stand before God in the place of judgment and God is going to punish your sin in you or you're going to die once 
and stand before God in judgment. And what you're going to find is that he has already punished it in your substitute, King Jesus. And the invitation for you is what is it going to be? What's it going to be for you? Are you going to dive into that fountain of blood and be washed, redeeming love, be attributed to your account? Not because you're good, but because you're banking on King Jesus, your faith and your trust and your hope is in him? Or are you going to go before God hoping that you can squeak in and then find out on that day that God is going to punish sin and he's going to punish it in you because you're not hiding yourself by faith in the substitute King Jesus himself? What's it going to be for you? What you need to know is that in the midst of all this blood language of Hebrews 9, what you have here ultimately before you is an invitation. An invitation to come and rest upon Jesus in true faith, rest upon Jesus in true repentance, with a heart that truly confesses a song that we've seen before. My hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I'm not going to trust the sweetest frame, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wholly, with my whole body, whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, I'm going to wholly lean on Jesus' name. For Christ is the solid rock on which I stand. All other else is sinking sand. The invitation is don't go and anchor the hope of eternity on the sinking sand of anything other than Jesus Come and stand on the solid rock, Jesus' blood and righteousness, as your only hope of salvation. Let's pray. King Jesus, we need you to make these things plain and clear. We need you to make these things plain and clear. For some of us, even right now, we're treating these things as a laughing matter, as a joking matter. We're treating you, Jesus, as just, you know, that thing that maybe some religious fanatics really get fired up about, but you know, it's not going to trick a, someone as wise and smart as me. God, I pray that you would disabuse us of that foolishness. Our only hope of salvation is found in Christ, and right now there's an open invitation to come and receive receive that salvation in Christ alone. Lord, would you stir that in some hearts that need to do that very thing right now, repent and believe in Jesus for salvation. For others of us, we need to walk in faith out of here, trusting that we'll be given opportunities to speak this truth to others. Lord, help us. Give us the power and the grace. Empower us by your Holy Spirit. Give us the grace we need to walk in obedience to you. Why? Why? So that you, King Jesus, would receive the glory you're worthy to receive. So that souls who have sinned against you can find the redemption that they need. So that those whom you are calling to yourselves, to yourself, would repent and believe and come to you and be saved. Lord Jesus, do these things for your name and for your glory. It's in Christ your name I pray, amen.